Hello, Rich Bowlers here, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who supports the podcast by writing a review on Apple. And now, if you prefer, you can also leave a review on Spotify. Please do, as it helps massively. I read every review, and it's always great to know that an episode has landed with you. So, big hug and heartfelt thanks. Now today, I have Dr. Bjorn Sternberg on the show. Bjorn is a research leader in the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Programme at Australian National University, where he's engaged in all sorts of really cool projects, from grid integration of distributed energy resources and electric vehicles, to social acceptance of new energy technology. Now, you may very well be asking yourself right now, what the heck has all this to do with parenting? Now, Not only is Bjorn a fairly recent father, but he's also the author of a new children's book called Amy's Balancing Act, which is an inspiring tale about clean energy and the power of diversity. The story explains the complexities and emotions of our collective journey to a clean energy future in an engaging and entertaining children's book, which, hopefully, even politicians should be able to understand. And if not them, at least their kids will be able to explain things to them. Anyway... I hope you enjoy this chat with Dr. Bjorn Sternberg. Bjorn Sternberg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Richard. Now, I um, saw your book on LinkedIn and uh, I saw what it was all about and the way you were going about it. And I just thought, yep, got to reach out and have a chat with Bjorn. This is great. So can you tell us a little bit about you and then we can talk about the book? Yeah, fantastic. So happy that you've you've come across it. I guess for maybe for this podcast or this audience, I'll start with the fact that I'm a relatively new dad. I've got a like eighteen month old, almost eighteen month old son. Um, and I kind of professionally I work at I work in renewable energy is kind of how I would frame it. Um, I kind of have currently work at the Australian National University doing research on how we can integrate solar, electric vehicles, batteries, everything else into our electricity system. Because if we're going to address climate change, we need to electrify everything. That's kind of a foundational way of decarbonizing things because you can get clean electricity from solar and wind. Um, And it's also a much more efficient way of doing things. So we need to electrify everything, which means we need everything to work with the grid. So that's kind of what I do in my day job. Now, I've previously, I kind of got into this field through... An interest in science. I did my PhD in physics looking at solar cells um, and how to make those more efficient. Um, and then I kind of meandered out of hard sciences through um, some kind of social enterprise and community work, trying to work on the more human facets of, of energy and the struggles that exist around getting solar into rental properties or to apartment buildings. Um, but just generally coming to the view that it wasn't a hard technology question that we're missing. Um, it's much more about the humans in the system. And um, so that kind of has been my fascination for the better part of the last 10 years now. Can you actually go into a bit about the struggles, Bjorn? Yeah, it's kind of just all the... Um, I wanted to start with vested interests, but that's maybe a like a, a <laughs> that's pouring start. gasoline on it. <laughs> yeah, that In the worst way. way to start with like a, a negative way to start with it. Um, but it's just the like all the all the kind 
kind of human to human interactions and relationships and the kind of complex society that we live in. Um, and technologies are only ever a small part of that. It's kind of a tool for us. Um, and so particularly the, the cases that I was interested in with, with solar for rental properties, it's less about the economics of how much value a solar system can produce on a roof. It's much more about how you share that value amongst the, particularly the owner of the property and the tenant. But also it's about the dynamics between owner and, and tenant, but also everyone's interactions with the property manager. It's kind of the way I used to frame it is the kind of landlords don't trust tenants, tenants don't, tenants don't trust landlords, and no one trusts the real estate agent. <laughs> kind of, if you've got that kind of three-way relationship of mistrust, <laughs> then it's very hard to get anything positive done, even yeah. if economics are great, even if kind of landlord isn't aligned with kind of trying to address climate change or tenant is keen to or, or whatnot. They can be kind of good intents, but if the human relationships are, are fraught, it's going to be very, very difficult to enact anything yeah and the whole thing about rental properties as well is there's a huge demographic of people that don't own their own houses that would love to be powering the houses with solar aren't they yeah absolutely and but they are in such a dispowered um, kind of position that they're more concerned generally about kind of having the hole in the roof fixed before you start talking about putting solar panels on said roof so it's kind of those are the dynamics at play, and it's a it's a not dissimilar um, situation. And I've never tried to make this this comparison before, but I think it, it might have been something to it. That you have those same kinds of relationships and you know, mistrusts and competition and whatnot. If you zoom out to the energy system as a whole, where you have regulators, you have governments, you have um, companies that generate power, you have companies that sell electricity, kind of retail offers to to you and I. And again, there's a lot of kind of, um, again, vested interests, but kind of history, human relationships, kind of um, gaming and, and tensions and competition that sits in that space, all of which is kind of adding noise or um, kind of barriers to a clear line of, of progress towards a, a cleaner, fairer electricity system. Okay. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really interesting because getting back to the point you made about electrification is the way forward for uh, you know solving this problem. What do you reckon is your like Nirvana picture? Like if we had a blank canvas to say rebuild Sydney, how would you build it? So, so I'm a fan of before even thinking of electrification, the long suffering like um the class of actions that need to be done is it kind of efficiency now um, and it perhaps a neater way of of thinking about or talking about this that i've come to through work that i've been doing in the electrification of well not necessarily electrification but the decarbonization of the transport system rather than the electricity system um, there was a report that i was a part of called facts the framework for an australian clean transport strategy um and the framework we use there, and we adopted this from global kind of best practice, is that we first of all need to just avoid unnecessary trips of humans or um, uh, freight. So that's the number one thing to do. Then you want to move on to trying to shift uh, trips or 
by onto different modes of transport. So out of cars onto bikes, out of cars onto buses, out of cars onto pedestrians, just always out of cars. Um, and only then, as the very last part, do you want to improve the technology, which is then about getting an electrified shiny Tesla or, or whatnot. Um, and I think that's not dissimilar to the electricity system and to the way we use steel, the way we use concrete or anything else. We first of all want to try and avoid unnecessary uses of things, then find replacements um, for them, and only then talk about kind of uh, electrifying and um, having more efficient ways of, of moving electricity or energy around. So I think the I lived in, in Sydney for a decade and I was back there for the first time um, in, since COVID, since kind of three or more years, just a week ago to launch this kid's book. And it just was phenomenal sitting back in that gridlock traffic being like, oh, that's right. This, <laughs> yes. is, this, is, this is stressful. Um, but then also like we went to the beach. Like I do love Sydney. It's kind of geographically, I think, the best city on earth. So if you were to start with a blank canvas there, you know, kind of making a lot more quote-unquote livable, a lot more kind of out of cars um, and in terms of the – so my view of kind of transport and, and urban spaces is kind of out of cars, like the the cycling in Canberra is just an entirely different experience to when I used to cycle down Parramatta Road. Um, and then on the – so that's the main thing when I think of Sydney. When I think of the electricity system, I'm a big fan of kind of um, making it a little bit more local, um, a little bit more resilient in that way. So there's a concept of kind of organising the grid as a, a grid of microgrids or a federation of microgrids. So having local regions that are a bit more autonomous, a bit more self-sufficient um, and still connecting those all up together because then you have the efficiencies of being able to have green power in Sydney when there may not be any sun there, but there's lots of sun out in orange or vice versa, um, but that you also have the ability to run yourself locally um, if if you get cut off or if you just have lots of, of clean electricity. Yeah, because there's so many inefficiencies as well on there for, well, I guess there's efficiencies of one side of having centralised power, but then piping it hundreds of kilometres uh, I think it was Richard Dennis that once explained, you know, we, we dig this stuff out of a hole, we use a bit of energy or lose a bit of energy. We we transport this stuff to, a, you know, a, a power plant. We, you know, lose a bit more energy. We burn it, heat some water, turn it into steam, lose some more energy. And then that turns a turbine, lose some more energy. And then we push it through a transformer, ramp it up to like, 25,000 volts, lose quite a lot of energy, push it down these pipes called cables to a town, lose loads of energy there. And then we step it down in a transformer, lose some more energy, step it down another local transformer, lose some more. And then we pipe it into the house. It goes into the water heater, lose some more energy, heating up water again. And then you jump in the shower, turn it on and go, oh shit, that's hot. And then turn on the cold tap. And sort of like the amount of energy loss the whole way is just... It's breathtaking. It's just not an efficient system. But like reading about some of the stuff you wrote about microgrids and stuff does sound really appealing because generated super close to where it's being used. So you don't have those losses in, um, you know, sort of transporting it. But then you've also got the the flexibility as well if you're leaning on your, your neighborhood and, and, and almost like, I don't know, are there income opportunities and things like that there? 
Yeah, so uh, I think like I just would probably point out that the fast, the biggest inefficiencies whenever you go from whenever you try burning something to create electricity, that's like a ridiculously inefficient process. You're capturing kind of, I don't know, 20 to 40% at most of the kind of calorific content of the fuel source to begin with. And then again, um, so that's the same if you are in a um, driving a petrol car or running a, a coal power plant. Like that's the inefficient part. But then once you have it as electricity, shifting it up through wires, transformers into your home and around about, that's actually very efficient. The losses there are very, very much smaller, comparable to the going burning. Yeah, the actual burning. Um, and that's and that's kind of that's where the origin of the electrify everything mantra comes from is that if we can get things to electricity immediately so that's where solar and wind are so good you're not you're going straight to electricity and then if you can keep it as electricity when you move it around that's efficient and then if you can use it as electricity rather than to as you say um, kind of just uh, having a resistance heater that's heating up your hot water system again again that's going to be much more efficient so that's why we want to electrify everything. But there is still um, a big benefit to having uh, generation happen close to where uh, it's consumed. So having solar on your roof is more efficient than having solar pumped from Western New South Wales. But like you said, there's also a counterbalancing efficiencies of scale with having a large solar plant means that it's probably better maintained. It has better electronics in its has better weather forecasting, etc. Um, has financial efficiencies of scale with how the capital is invested in it and whatnot. Um, so these are the two tensions between having a kind of keeping the, the relatively centralized, high um, using transmission lines, piping electricity across the country kind of version of an electricity grid. And the more um, household independent or, or neighborhood or community independent. And I think I don't like to think that that's a dichotomy. I think yeah. we actually do both. We do need to be able to reply, rely on it being windy in Tasmania, in Queensland when it's not in Victoria. Um, but we also want to um, kind of encourage local generation um, because of efficiencies, but also because of the way that that involves people into thinking about energy that's the huge huge effect that it has is that once you have solar and you on your roof you kind of think of yourself as a a, you are a generator of power in the the national grid so then you start asking questions that you wouldn't otherwise yeah Um, there's the resilience piece of if you have that generation at home kind of you'll have you can have that if you have the right electronics even when the rest of the grid goes black so it's it's interesting yeah it's interesting when you say that as well Vion, because like connecting the dots to how your electricity is produced to when you're using it that's the thing that i think has been missing for some time because i remember thinking about okay when someone says oh you know um i don't want to go renewable because of you know all these problems that they throw up but then it's like, what's the alternative? Okay, the electricity is generated by burning coal. And okay, that's in someone else's backyard, so it's not your problem. But what if that little coal-burning power plant was sat on your kitchen side when you turn on your kettle? Would you prefer to have like a wind turbine there or some solar panels? Or would you prefer to have a coal power plant chucking, you know, sulfur dioxide and all those sort of 
pollutants into your kitchen. And I think like bringing it much closer to like, you know, where we are, then you can start to have a real conversation around, okay, um, yeah, no, I don't want that stuff being chucked into my backyard because essentially it's, yeah. it's all our backyard, isn't it? Yeah, and it, and it connects, I think, like you say, how you use energy as well to how it's generated because either way we're going to end up in a um, like – 100% renewably powered electricity system in the um, equivalent of the blink of an eye when we think of we were just talking about our, our kids like we're talking seven and a half years and we'll have according to the new federal target over 80% of our electricity generated by renewables now which is kind of it's massive <laughs> that's like, yeah. knocking on the door of 100% then now and that's all going to be essentially solar and wind and so we do need to prepare people for the fact that that um, influences or we would like them to modulate how they use electricity to kind of be more aligned with how and when it is generated. So the, the simplest example of that, which we're already seeing in the market now, is that we want more and more people to shift their, say, their hot water or other loads, their electric vehicles, to the daytime, to sunshine hours rather than at night. It used to be that we had a problem where we couldn't turn our coal-fired power stations off overnight because they take multiple days to turn off and on. And so we had to like actually increase the amount of electricity that was used at night, not because we necessarily wanted as many streetlights as we ended up getting, but because we just needed to somehow burn this electricity because otherwise our coal plants would suffer. And that's now, a really important point, is it? Because this electricity can't just, just dissipate out there. It's got to be used up. Otherwise, it causes huge problems, doesn't it? Yeah, and so that's like base load. When you talk about base load power, that's not a complement. That's not something that you want. That's just a reflection of like that we have to having to somewhat artificially create a load so that it can help out our coal fired power stations that can't turn down or turn off overnight. And so that's what we used to do. And we used to have the cheapest electricity prices at night to kind of um, incentivize that kind of behavior. Now, the cheapest time to use electricity is, is during sunshine hours because that's when we're getting all the solar coming on, on to the grid. And so that's what we want to want to have happen. That's like the natural, in, unambiguous kind of future that we're living in. And that's a, an easier kind of, I think, dots to connect if you have solar in your own roof um, or you see it on your local school or, or your neighbor's roof. You can go, oh, okay, like, yeah, there's, there's electricity coming out of there. I can see it's sunny this is maybe a good time to turn on the washing machine rather than start putting it on when before going to bed or, or whatever. The, the real key of that is that it's like about flexibility. That's the thing yes. that we're trying to, and we're going to need need. And that's really the, the, at the heart of this kid's book that I've written as well. It's kind that's of right. the protagonist is kind of going on all kinds of journeys, but the, at the heart of it, it's just becoming more flexible. Yep. And I think that's the the thing that uh, the conversation has not been about. It's been, like you say, that dichotomy. It's either this or that. And really, it's way more nuanced, isn't it? Yeah. Or, or there's kind of um, bad faith arguments made about nuclear or actually we will carbon capture and storage, which has never worked, um, despite the billions that, that's been pumped into it. Um, so I think part of, again, the, the, not to harp on about the book, like the motivation there is to try and just avoid those bad faith arguments yeah. and talk about the kind of unambiguous, this is the future that we're going down. And it's not a, and it's not a, 
either as complex or as scary of a thing of a proposition as you might have read in other parts of the media. It's actually pretty straightforward. It just requires us to be a little bit more flexible um, and kind of overcome our hesitancy to um, enact change. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And we talked about that earlier. Um, But no, I I actually disagree with you slightly. And I think we should harp on about the book because I think the book's great. And so (laughs) um, I I love the way that you've sort of like captured the certain elements of the electricity generation by these characters, you know, these animals like Sol, the guana, Gale, the albatross, you know, representing wind, snowy, the glider, you know, you know, the snowy hydro or hydroelectric yeah. generation. And it sort of brings it all together in a beautiful sort of, well, I mean, it, it's a parable of how energy generation can work together to achieve the same outcomes. But the thing I love most, Bjorn, is the fact that you haven't disparaged Clyde, the Clydesdale horse that is the incumbent energy provider the 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 horse that's been carrying the load all this time and and i think that's a really fresh take on this because i mean i i've been guilty of this in the past going oh coal just gotta stop it it's just ridiculous but i love the way you haven't disparaged it and it's like look it's had its place it played a really useful part and now it's time to to you know remove the burden from that you know that old horse it's knackered let's let it you know you know go go out to pasture and retire uh, and let's move on to the you know the fresh fresh faced sort of crew that can really pick up the mantle that's yeah i couldn't have said it better no and that i like so the book's called amy's balancing act and that balancing act there's a kind of more literal sense of that in in the story and that the uh, protagonist starts to have to balance the load of these different um, the male um, between these different native animals, Sol, Guana, and Gale, the albatross, and whatnot. But there's a there's a higher level kind of meta balancing act that's going on here, which is exactly what you've pointed out, the balancing act of being respectful to, to coal, to gas, to the power stations, to the communities that service those power stations and that have provided reliable power for, for decades, being respectful to them um, whilst being really clear-eyed about the fact that that's the past, um, and it, like you say, needs to be retired. They're worn out, they're knackered, they're being run way past their their built for um, uh, lifespans. And the good news is that we can move on to an entire have an entirely as reliable electricity system um, that is clean and is even cheaper, um, and that is made up of these um, new technologies, clean technologies, solar wind energy storage um, or a guana, an albatross and a glider in the parable. Yeah, I like it. And I think maybe it is such an emotive thing for people as well. You know, and if someone comes and attacks you in a community meeting or something, of course you're going to respond with like, you know, or at least get very defensive. And yeah, I, I like this idea that actually it's it's all working together and we're just it's a migration across to a new way of doing things and we want to look after and support everyone and you know make sure that it's equitable yeah and i, th- and I think a, like a, a kids book's just so well suited to that sort of kind of disarming positive inclusive messaging it's keeps it you forced to keep it super simple now which means that no one can kind of claim ignorance and then kind of voice some bad faith kind of arguments instead, you know, and it allows you to deal with that emotion, which I see, yes, in, in communities that are affected 
Um, and then from my vantage point, I see it a lot in the electricity sector, kind of humans as well, the people who work at regulators, at retailers, at um, in the control rooms. Like they're on an emotional journey as well. They're the ones having to kind of um, enact this change and let go of the systems and ways of doing things that they've been very comfortable with um, and instead kind of venture into this new world and which it is going it must make their gonna... job much harder as well initially because it's like if you've trained as i say a uh what are those like flight coordinators that work at airports and sort of manage all the flights coming if you yeah if, you, if you've trained as a flight controller and you've spent 20 years working as a flight controller if someone says okay now you we want you to do this thing over here that's completely different oh man i'd be i've done my 20 years like what more do you want you want me to retrain now so there's all those sort of issues as well so it's absolutely and those are those are technical issues but they're also i think really really emotional emotional issues I, I love that analogy i've not thought of that but yeah if you've spent 20 years working with helicopters and now all of a sudden you've got to work with planes submarines or, or something <laughs> water, whatever they're called like that's going to be a bit of a learning curve yeah. and that's going to then in a very naturally human manner cause some resistance and that's what i like kind of am trying to give voice to here of that kind of and say so that's okay. That's a very natural human reaction, but we do still need to go on that transition and end up in a in a better place. Um, and the other thing I I just like I'm reminded of now is that Clyde was the first character, so the the horse. He was the like inspiration for the story. It was like that's how I want to capture coal, and that's how I want to deal with coal. I want it to be um, something that you can everyone knows knows it's been good to us, but it's a workhorse. Yeah workhorse it's been a workhorse but it's old and it needs to be retired that was really the the bit that got the whole thing going and then seeing the opportunity for um casting the energy system and the humans within that into um, the protagonist who's got to learn to then deal with the consequences of that and become more flexible yeah yeah i think it's great and i, I think you've you've nailed it in that sense because it, it is such uh, an important topic that everyone needs to play a part in. Like we can put our head in the sand here and, you know, carry on regardless, but we still need to move across and make this transition and decarbonize the economy, essentially. You know, it's not going away. And if anything, the more we ignore it, the harder it's going to be and the more expensive it's going to be. And and it affects all of our lives if, if we want to or wanted to or not. It's kind of electricity is an essential service. We all use it. Um, and so the way that we use it is going to change a little bit in the future. Um, and uh, like the infrastructure systems that support it are also in everyone's lives and everyone's community, be that just the solar going onto your, your local school, um, perhaps some batteries are being put onto the end of your road or onto the um, poles going down your street, or you might live more rurally and you're seeing a wind farm be built or new transmission lines be built. We're all involved in this. It's, it's very much an essential service that we all need and rely on pretty much for every moment of the day. Um, so we're all in this together and hopefully we can therefore all um, kind of continue to give it social license and support that transition. Yeah, yeah. And there's some great stuff happening. Uh, it's really it's really heartening to see. I mean, you, you only have to look at the electric cars that are being developed now. And I, I think the thing that gets me excited is 
they're actually way better than petrol cars. Like way better. Yeah. Like if you've ever driven in one, it's like it's insanely fun. And and obviously, yeah. you know, it, it's not the the ultimate transport. I mean, the push bikes are arguably like, uh, you know, it's a freedom machine. Uh, you can yeah. go for as long as you like, as long as you've got plenty of baked beans. But um, I think uh, that that element of it's actually a better product. It is, you know, fundamentally so much more better to drive safer, all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a, a a real opportunity there. I mean, do you see any other areas where there's something that's just fundamentally better? It's a better technology and it will win out and it, and people might not just have been aware of it yet? Yeah, I think um, I don't ride an electric bike, but um, I have ridden on them and they're also very fun. And I think framing those as kind of the forgotten on uh, kind of, out of the limelight electric vehicle i think is is key because there's such a it's quite a different experience riding one of those to riding a push bike there's a lot less pushing involved <laughs> yeah. which means you can have longer distances you yeah. can ride kind of you know, in conditions that mean that you'll get to work not being sweaty you can ride with your kids you can ride with your groceries you can ride where it's more hilly you can etc etc like it's such a game-changing i think um, technology and then I'd probably say just everything that's electrified, like an electric hot water system, like a heat pump, is just vastly better than a um, resistance heat pump. Or a wood uh, burner. Yeah. A wood burner, like, um, yeah, much better than a wood burner. LED lightings, you can you can dim them, you can kind of do lots of things with those. Uh, I'm just kind of looking around my living room. <laughs> think well, I, I love one of my favorite. Yeah, one of my favorite books is The Martian. I don't know whether you've read it, but it's it's like listening to that on audio. It makes me laugh out loud several times over. Like it's the best thing to put on when you're doing like work around the house or something. But the mm-hmm. thing there is, he's on Mars. Like he's it's MacGyver on Mars essentially. Like he's stranded on Mars and he has to fix a load of things to survive. But Everything is electrified. That's the only power input he has. He has solar panels outside. He has to clean the, the, the sand off every day. And then his yeah. whole habitation, whether it's like oxygen, uh, you know, purification, um, you know, where hot water, heating, cooling of the habitat, all that stuff, it's all electric. You know, sewage processing, you name it. So everything can be done with it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, like, exciting, like, just what technology it does exist and how much we can actually sort of, I guess, reinvent our systems and, and processes to, to embrace the, the best of the best, essentially. Absolutely. I'm just thinking one more room removed. Now, the electric stovetop, we only replaced that relatively recently. That is just, like, phenomenally better. The fact that it's so much faster, it's more efficient, which I love, but it's like so much more accurate in the way you can set the the temperature. There are great timing functions, which means you just say, "All right, I want to boil my pasta for four minutes." <laughs> and then it turns off. Like you can get distracted with your kid, and it'll still be perfect pasta. Like can't do that with a gas stove. No so way. it's just like mentally much, much better. Although I've got to say, like. I can't be a pizza oven. Like there's something fundamentally nice about wood burn pizza, wood fired pizza. But you know, that, I think it's it's okay to have the occasional vice. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I mean, um, getting on to obviously, um, you you mentioned like boiling pasta for your your son. But what what have you sort of what do you see as as the 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 future for our kids? Because our kids are similar ages and stuff. What 
what sort of hope do you, you we talked about being an optimist before this chat like what do you see as like the the opportunity that we have as parents now to sort of help shape the future for our children yeah i, I did give you the proviso that i'm not by nature an optimist so let me start dark <laughs> and we'll, we'll work ourselves to something positive like the the dedication in the in this kids book is to my son unsurprisingly um, and to his peers who will hopefully live to to see the to see and live in the world of 2100 now and i wrote that because i only had that realization recently now that it's not kind of my son's son or kind of at, at all removed um from this this year which to me is kind of just very very existentially tied to climate models climate models went to 2100 um and they're freaking frightening at 2100 and but i'm always like oh that's kind of that's still kind of to me the distant future like let's try and get things sorted by 2030 2050 it'll be a bit hot a bit unpleasant but we'll still have some hope by 2100 it's a done deal we're either living in an extremely unpleasant extremely war-torn and, and ravaged kind of world or we've gotten our shit together so i don't know if i can swear on this podcast but totally. we've gotten our stuff <laughs> you're a parent and it's, we'll it's encouraged <laughs> And we'll be living in a like a much much better place. Like we'll, climate change will have been kind of it'll either have been solved or it will have exploded by then. It's not kind of been be in this middle state where there's some uncertainty about the outcomes. So I kind of just have to presume that it'll be the latter that it'll be sorted, and it's not going to be sorted kind of as a um, by default or without our very active participation in it. But I have to be optimistic that our active participation in it will lead to the positive trajectory that takes emissions down to net zero now by 2050. And if we can keep temperatures below, let's say two degrees by 2100, now humanity will probably have adapted to that world and it will, it will be all okay. Now, so I forget, does that, does that answer your question? Is it a happy future? No, you it's said you wanted to start dark, but I, I yeah. think you sort of like aired on to, there is a, there is hope. So what, yeah, what are the things that we should be thinking about and doing right now as parents? Do you think, Bjorn? Mm. As a, I mean, my my son's a toddler, so I don't have to think too much about his kind of science education or his climate education just yet. Um, but I think they're like all the things that, that people have known and been saying for for ages. It's kind of um, like being optimistic, being positive, but being engaged being engaged in your kind of social networks, your family networks, your political networks, now um, being kind of mindful of how you act, um, kind of, again, socially, politically, but also then physically in terms of how you use electricity, how you, you travel around. Um, but trying to see, I think, a large part of the, the happy future that I see all if we go back to redesigning Sydney kind of doing that in a way that's much more based on um, on human human well-being, human happiness. Yeah. With this, like no one actually gets that much happiness from burning coal. That's not an innately, like you don't have to do that to be a happy human. Um, you do need to have good social networks, a healthy environment, um, the work-life balance in the modern phrasing. So I think 
if our family lives and our personal lives are directed towards those sources of actual happiness and well-being, they're very, very nicely aligned yeah. with having a less, having a more positive impact on the climate. Um, so we make it more of a toward goal rather than an away goal, which it has been in the past. It's like painting a yeah. compelling future, isn't it? But it, it really, it's about building the fabric of society in a way that lends itself as a default to a much more energy efficient and supportive environment in general. And I don't know about you, but I get the feeling that we've kind of just like thrown this together over the last couple of centuries and not really having a clue. And it's not been deliberate at all. It's just it's just worked out this way to a large extent. That I don't think there's been any bad actors as such. It's just, you know, everyone was trying to do their best to innovate and improve society. And they did great but it, we just need to update now and be more deliberate in this new this new era. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the I think some of the systems or the system incentives that we have had over the last few centuries have kind of had a lot to do with steering where we have become. And there are still very structural kind of systems challenges to getting us out of this pickle. And you often think I feel like I'm often torn between. Uh, uh, do we need to change the system or work within the system and kind of more incrementally change things? And I depends on the day you ask me about how I feel about <laughs> that. There are strong arguments for both. Um, but I think the the thing about happiness is I often have been told that like cycle. There are many studies supposedly that say that cycling is the happiest form of of commuting. And I I can stand by that completely. It, it is. A, a freedom machine. I love calling it that because that's how it feels. Like I know exactly yeah. how long it's going to take to get from the train to the office. I'm never late. I never miss the train, although I've probably cursed myself now. And yeah. I always get a rock star car park. I mean, what's not to love about that? You might get yeah. rained on occasionally, but, you know, we, we don't get too much rain here. Yeah, and like I ride to, to work into childcare with my son. It's the highlight of the day. We'll ride past the little, like wetland he points out all the birds to me the dogs the other bikes he gets ex currently ex un, um, healthily excited about cars which i'm <laughs> not approving of, but buses even more so so that's kind of i approve of that more so um <laughs> it's like it's absolutely awesome and you compare that to kind of sitting in an isolated by yourself in a big metal box getting upset by all the other metal boxes moving around you it's, it's incomparable so I think you're right to frame it as a like towards goal rather than an away goal. It's not that anyone wants to take your car away from you. It's just that they're going to provide you with a sweet bike path and an electric bike that makes it much, much more easy and fun to get to work that way. Um, and we have more connected communities. So you spend more time kind of going to your neighbors or like kind of the local community park or activities. And it's just naturally that feels much better as a human. Yeah. And it also has a great climate impact. I yeah. think that's the, the I, way it needs. I lived in Japan for four years and I think you know, it started out I just trained everywhere. And it was probably in the second year I actually got a bike. And it just opened my mind completely. I was like, I thought trains are good because you could go, you know, go out for dinner and have a few beers and still get home without driving a car, you know, you never want to drive drunk. Um, so that was like, trains are amazing. And then I got a bike and I was like, oh my God, this is next level. Like you can go anywhere, anytime, you're not beholden to a timetable. And yep. it was just, it was Train phenomenal on. how well the whole system was set up for bikes. 
And, you know, they had these multi-story car parks for bikes where you just got these, like, escalators that would drag your bike up if you had your brakes on. And then you just go and slot it in and shift all the bikes, pile them all up against one another, and it was all numbered. And it was just so convenient. And I think those are the sort of things that we're not even aware of in, you know, countries outside of very highly biker-sized cultures. And it, it is absolutely epic getting out of a restaurant after having a, a great meal, catching up with friends for a couple of beers, and then just, you know, cycling on a bike path home. It's probably probably wrong to say that. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but it felt great. It, it, I mean, it's even just having a bike path. Like in Sydney, I never cycled on a bike path because they didn't exist in the places that I needed to go. Now riding in Canberra, I would never ride on the road again. Uh, kind of, it's just chalk and cheese kind of comparison it doesn't help doesn't hurt that i've had some friends kind of get into accidents on the road since then but like it's such a small uh kind of investment if you think of society of the cost of a, a cycleway or really it's a footpath it just goes through parklands here and that's minuscule but the effect that that has is huge yeah now, and on health as well on health, the co-benefits it are phenomenal i think that's that kind of like small targeted investment, great impact and looking for co-benefits and just making things attractive. These are all the ways in which we're going to address climate change. Um, and I think that again is kind of, there's so much more power in that. There's so much more excitement in that. You can hear that in, in both of our tones of voice. And that's kind of what I'm trying to capture in this kid's book rather than the dry kind of, taxonomy of a, a carbon tax or a kind of new electricity tariff or anything else that you might hear about going on in you know, the electricity market yeah. but that, that's kind of my design you've mentioned richard dennis kind of that's econo babble that's just designed to yeah. get you upside because you don't want to know about it and so therefore you just say oh i really don't want to know about it let someone else deal with it and you disengage and, and nothing happens so this is kind of the antidote of this. This is hopefully fun, engaging, and you see that it's it's simple and, and hopefully compelling. Yep. Well, it certainly is. And I think, you know, if nothing else, having our kids sort of talking about this stuff, you know, discussing a story at bedtime, it's really just setting the setting the setting the tone for you know, future conversations. And I know a lot of kids at school that are already across this. And I think they're trying to look at our, our generation and go, you guys, like, you had no idea. I can't believe you screwed it up so bad. But yeah. I think that's good because they're going to push us and they're going to demand, like, hey, what are you doing about this? And, you know, you should be doing this because it's way better. What are you thinking here? Why would you even do that? And I can't wait to have those conversations with my own kids. It's going to be great. <laughs> Absolutely, and when I, when I've done readings of the book in schools to um, primary school kids, like I kind of read the book in and do my kind of set questions in ten minutes, and then the next fifty minutes is them just hurling all these like quite sophisticated questions at me, um, and really thinking kind of things through. Not just okay, electric vehicles are great, but hang on, where are we getting the like minerals? Where are we getting the kind of raw materials for? How does that compare to getting on a bus? How does that compare to running my old petrol car for a bit longer because then I don't have to create a new car quite as soon or forget all the other questions. Like it's really phenomenal how switched on these, what, 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds are already now. And that's super inspiring. Like if, if that's a whole classroom that are already thinking like that, 
Like that's that's a very bright future. Um, and the other point that I, I can't help but, but mention is that um, thinking of reading it to to my son and hopefully lots of people reading it to their kids. Now, actually, this is now getting segue onto segue. But one of the most like enjoyable parts of the the book story so far to me, which I really just hadn't anticipated. Is getting receiving lots of emails, texts from from friends, but also people who I don't know who have bought the books, of them reading it to their kids and the kids being stoked on it. Like that's such a like fulfilling experience that I somehow was too myopic to to see. So that's been fantastic. Now the the powerful thing about kids is that they're such good lobbyists. Like you know, this <laughs> anyway, I'm sure like they'll twist your arms and they'll read you get you to read them their favorite book on repeat. Um, so if I can get this book in front of into in front of enough kids, maybe even the kids of politicians, we're just going to have it being read to them over and over again, and then all the parents and politicians will also be on be exposed and hopefully on board. So what I'm hearing, Bjorn, is it's actually a Trojan horse. It's it's an education tool for the parents, not the kids. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I love it. Correct. I, I would always say that was my dream, that it would be like par- uh, politicians would read it to their kids and then the politicians would understand and that would be great. And Craig Castle at the launch pointed out, out that that's probably the wrong way around. It's probably the kids who are going to be explaining it to the parents. But either way, I'll, I'll take that. No, that's great. And, well, I think... You know, hopefully this does, you know, goes from strength to strength and achieves exactly that beyond because I think it absolutely deserves to. And, and thank you so much for putting in the, you know, the three years of effort that's taken to sort of uh, pull this all together and, and, you know, the inspiration behind it as well. It's it's uh, admirable to see. Th- thanks, Richard. It's, yeah, it's not all been fun and games, but it has been very fulfilling in the end. And so it should be. <laughs> Great. Well, um, before we sort of close things up, is there anything or is there a way that people can reach out to you or anything that you'd like to say to people? Yeah, they um, can definitely reach out to me. I'm on, for as of this book, I'm on Instagram. It's just my name, Bjorn Sternberg. Um, I'm much more active on LinkedIn, always happy to connect there. Um, and I have a website, which is also just my name, bjornsternberg.com, where you can read more about the book. Now, order a copy if you so wish. Um, and there's also links there to a really neat organisation called Cool Australia, who produce educational resources for um, schools as well as for parents and carers. Um, and so they've created a whole bunch of lesson plans for primary school uh, classes and also a whole dedicated set just for parents um, based, so all around climate change and clean energy, um, all based on the book. So um, that might be of interest to people as well. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much for coming along today, Bjorn. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Richard. Well, I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Bjorn. If you'd like to get in touch with him or purchase a copy of Amy's Balancing Act, I'll put all the links into the show notes at thedadmindset.com. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone else that might appreciate it, sharing really is caring, especially as it's Father's Day tomorrow. Also, if you have any great ideas for guests you'd like me to interview in future, send an email through to rich at thedadmindset.com. Anyway, that's all from me for now. Happy Father's Day to all you Australian dads out there. It really is all about you tomorrow, so milk it for every last pancake and shoulder massage you can muster. To everyone else, I hope you have a great week, and as ever, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. 